Okay, Corey, I'm thinking of a number between one and five million. Guess what it is? Wait a second. This seems familiar. You gave me this same wide range before, right? Yes, I did. It's a good memory. Uh, three years ago in 2019, the number was right in the middle, about two and a half million, which was the estimate at that time of the underproduction of housing in the United States. And your guess then was spot on. Now, uh, what do you think about the current number? Well, no one could have predicted what has happened since the last time we had the discussion, uh, almost none of which has helped to reduce the, the shortage of housing. So I'm guessing it's not getting any better. Yep. True to your intuition, housing underproduction is now estimated to be much higher, 3.8 million. That's the number of units, single family or multifamily, that we are below what is needed to close out the overall housing supply gap. We continue to not build enough. And I'm glad you said that number because that's exactly the one I was thinking. So I'm right twice here. <laughs> uh, but that lack of supply really contributes to the growing affordability crisis we're in today. And since last talking about it a couple of years ago, there are growing issues beyond affordability, including issues of racial equity and housing opportunity and climate challenges. So a lot to consider today. Hello, and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aver. Today, we're going to talk about the shortage of affordable housing units overall, additional challenges, and how we can use an authoritative report to broadly address key housing issues. We're joined today by Mike Kingsella, the Chief Executive Officer of Up for Growth and the driver of the Housing Under Production Report series, including their flagship report, Housing Under Production in the United States. Up for Growth has been involved in a lot of data-driven research, but they're going beyond research on historical data to also creatively determine ways that housing underproduction today can become a housing opportunity for cities and towns in the future. The housing underproduction report can even be considered a tool to be used towards increasing housing affordability, racial equity, and climate resilience in local housing markets. Mike, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, it's absolutely such a you know jam-packed report. Um, we have so much to cover today, but maybe just uh, give us the quick overview and some background on the report. The Housing Under Production in the U.S. report is, is a reboot of a report that we actually published about four years ago, where we wanted to shine a light on the extent to which America had fallen into a housing deficit. And the fact that the housing deficit is not unique to places like California or the Eastern Seaboard or even the Southeast, but in fact, truly is national. And so this new report really takes this research a layer deeper, reporting underproduction, not just at the state-by-state -state level, but actually at the metropolitan level with 100% coverage of the U.S. as a whole. Yeah, Mike, it's just a great report and such a great reboot because I think that what it does is it really makes crystal clear some kind of pretty hard things to kind of put together all in one place. As you think about it, you've got to build a framework to get to something that gets you such a clean answer. Can you speak to us a little bit about how you developed that? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, in our, in our first report, we found that America fell significantly short of meeting housing needs. And so we were really interested in developing research that provided a rigorous framework to measure and estimate housing production, not only at its higher level of geography, the metropolitan level, but also get at changes in housing under production over time. So we wanted to design a new methodology that really tried to do three things. One, 
estimate underproduction or a deficit of needed homes at the metro by metro level. Uh, we looked at all 309 metro areas across the country and for non-metropolitan America, really looking at the what is defined as a PUMA in census language, which is population areas of about 100,000 people, which roughly correlate to county boundaries. So that way we can understand across the country with 100% coverage, what's going on at the local housing or local regional housing market level. The second element that we wanted to unpack is what are some of those component parts or drivers of underproduction? So we really spent time thinking about how do we estimate housing needs and how do we estimate housing availability? And I know, Steve, that we're going to want to unpack some of those concepts later on in this conversation. And then finally, we wanted to really understand how are these trends evolving over time? And to do that, we really built a model that takes publicly available data from census, from BLS, from other publicly available data sources from federal agencies to estimate how underproduction is evolving year over year. So our analysis in our initial report looks at underproduction from 2012 to 2019. And we have a model now uh, where we'll be able to update that estimate every year moving forward. So really developing a scorecard of sorts uh, for policymakers working at all levels of government to understand what's going on and where the trend's heading. And, you know, there's an interesting part of this where in one way of thinking, right, you can look at the problem like, look, you know, 3.8 million units short, uh, we just need to build more housing. But it's more complicated than that. You take a deeper look here and start to look at some of those components to, you know, where to build more housing, what type of housing to build, how this factors into into uh, more than just supply. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so that's the new policy framework that Up for Growth is introducing in this report, which we call a better foundation. Really recognizing how foundational housing is, not only to affordability and housing stability, but to economic dynamism and sustainable fiscal situations for municipalities and, and regions and statewide governments. Really recognizing that housing is a foundation to opportunity. So in this report, we really kind of create two paths. We talk a lot about what we call more of the same, which is continuing to build housing according to existing development patterns under status quo policies, just building more of the same versus a better foundation, which is really thinking about the fact that policymakers do have agency, they have choices in how they incentivize new homes and where those homes are built. Historically, regions have sort of viewed the issue of sprawl or densification as a binary option, right? As a choice. Regions with strong demand for housing have either grown expansive, building more homes, often in sprawling patterns, or they've chosen to become more expensive, building too few homes relative to job and population growth. And that could be a result of physical barriers, like a city on a peninsula, or that could be a result of artificial barriers like exclusionary zoning or both. And so as we carried out this analysis, we ultimately concluded that the choice of expansive growth versus expensive growth is a false one. Places like Las Vegas, Boise, Austin, that were able to maintain affordability in the face of job growth and population growth until about 2010 suddenly became 
more expensive. In fact, Austin, of course, uh, grabbing national headlines over the past year is one of the most expensive uh, markets with rising housing costs relative to peer cities across the U.S. So uh, we really dug into that land use discussion in our model, really not thinking just about building America's 3.8 million homes of underproduced inventory, but really thinking about the where and the what. Uh, where can we create more housing opportunities to generate better affordability outcomes, equity outcomes, climate outcomes, and economic outcomes, but also what are the types of homes to really better meet housing need given household characteristics and character of the neighborhood. And so those are some of the issues that we got into in the study as we looked at the choices policymakers have to make in terms of meeting housing needs more effectively. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, two points that you made that I just want to circle back to, because I think they're so important. Instead of averages across states, you looked at metros and Puma areas, which is really getting specific. And then I think that you spoke about too, when you say the better foundation versus the more the same, the more of the same, as you point out in the report, is just putting housing most anywhere. But, you know, even within those MSAs and Puma areas, there's better places to build that produce better outcomes in the report. And so there you're looking at additional factors to kind of tear out specific locations where this housing might go. I think speaking to high economic mobility type issues and things like that, um, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, that's right. The Better Foundation really at its heart is a roadmap for policymakers to not only build out of their current housing deficits, but increase affordability, uh, increase housing equity, particularly with an eye towards high opportunity neighborhoods. And we define high opportunity neighborhoods as places that are rich in jobs, rich in transportation and infrastructure, and community assets. It's really about designing a policy framework that enables communities to craft solutions that increase affordability while reducing displacement, increasing economic dynamism, improving fiscal health, and helping to address climate change. So to your point, Steve, more of the same really is this hypothetical growth scenario that assumes housing is developed consistent with past patterns and under existing policies, whereas a better foundation really optimizes the distribution of underproduced homes by prioritizing more homes in those high opportunity neighborhoods at a density scale to fit into the existing neighborhood fabric while increasing more affordable housing options. So I know that's a mouthful, but we're really excited about this because we think that this tool, this framework, will help policymakers in the local context understand where are those barriers or where are those impediments to achieving true housing equity, but also you know, what are the missing tools in the toolbox that could be created? And you've got in the report some really great graphics that just make this really clear. Reminds me a bit of playing SimCity all the time in the early 90s. Uh, but maybe just break some of this down for us, you know, in a high opportunity area with homes, more than like half a home per acre or, or a home on half an acre. You know, yeah. What are you looking at building there versus a, a place where you have, you know, maybe five homes an acre? Yeah. I mean, Corey, just to, to, to get to the finer point of sort of the geography of opportunity as we think about it, I want to say that not all neighborhoods are created equal. We know through the literature, particularly of Raj Chetty, that the zip code where one is born often is one of the greatest uh, determinants of economic mobility for folks over time. 
And so we really wanted to get at that issue. And so really specifically, how we thought about mapping opportunity is carving, let's say, the nation up into about 73,000 census tracts across the country, right? So you have these census tracts all across the U.S., urban, rural, suburban, exurban. And we said, to what extent do these places likely lead to opportunities or where putting more housing and creating a wider range of price points of housing, how can we connect more people to opportunity? So we really looked at three drivers as we define those areas. One is to what extent are places infrastructure rich, right? There's a difference in a place with crumbling sidewalks and inadequate water sewer services versus a place with transit and walkable city streets and lots of access to employment opportunities and community services and assets, right? So we call those places infrastructure rich. They're either walkable or they have high frequency, high quality um, uh, transit and transportation services. The second dimension was really understanding where do we have gaps between jobs and employment opportunities but not enough housing so that folks can live near where they work if they want to, right? So we call those places job-rich, housing-poor, meaning there's a lot of jobs, not a lot of housing. There's an opportunity there to create more opportunities for folks to access those high-quality employment options. And then finally, um, really to your point, Corey, thinking about economic mobility. And to that, we look to research out of Harvard University's Opportunity Insights, which is a longitudinal study looking from 1980 to 2010 and understanding for low-income kids, particularly lower-income kids in households of color, what have their economic mobility outcomes looked like at the census tracts level? And so there we're able to essentially get an understanding of where by putting more affordable housing, encouraging more housing opportunities writ large, can we create the opportunities for kids to take advantage of the assets that can drive and propel success through life, right? So tier one places, which are the absolute highest opportunity places meeting those three tests, represent about 2% of the nation, but they exist in every metropolitan area. Tier two places, which are uh, census tracts that meet any two, doesn't matter which two, but any two of the criteria that I laid out are, are that second designation of opportunity areas. And that makes about 14% of all census tracts with underproduction. And then finally, tier three are the balance census tracts that meet at least one of those tests, making up about 34%. So essentially, we mapped opportunity across half of the geography of America that is experiencing underproduction. And that's where we're suggesting that underproduction needs or housing needs are met. So then we get in this question of feathering and density. And that, Corey, is to your point, right? So we want to understand what is the neighborhood context. And so for a neighborhood that is found to be high opportunity based on our methodology, that is, let's say, less than one home for every two acres. So this is really low density. This is the fringe of urban areas. We, we suggest feathering and missing middle, you know, duplexes, triplexes, not insane amounts of density and not out of context with the existing infrastructure in the community and other residences throughout the area. Right. So really thinking about gently stepping up density, but at the same time, adding important units of housing to these high opportunity neighborhoods, jumping up to a place, let's say, that's two to five homes per acre, typical low density suburban communities, feathering in a mix of moderate density 
think three-story garden style apartments with missing middle. And that could be for sale or for rent housing. All the way to places above 12 units per acre, we would then be talking about building and introducing moderate and high density uh, forms. And the report, I think, I agree, Corey, it really does a great job at sort of visualizing, well, what does that look like at the block level? And again, we're really focused on communicating that we're not talking about towers everywhere. And in fact, high rise or high density is the minority condition. We can add a ton of housing in this country in existing neighborhoods without sprawl through largely moderate and missing middle density. And I think that's an important takeaway from this report. That's a really great point and tying it into how you think about high opportunity areas, which are often highly inaccessible, at least to to a lot of people. So one question I have just as a follow-up, you know, because we think also about high opportunity areas, inaccessibility and zoning issues. So it sounds to me like a lot of these thoughts on layering in low and moderate density uh, buildings into these places, would that fit within uh, within its existing zoning or similar zoning? Not necessarily, right? And, and I think that's where we've seen state legislatures from Maine out to Oregon and cities from Cambridge to Berkeley, California, advancing what's often called zoning reform proposals or missing middle proposals. This idea that under current zoning law in, in many communities across the country, you can't build what were built 100 years ago due to the promulgation of really Euclidean zoning across the country from the late 1910s to the 1930s. So certainly, I think the idea here is to feather in levels of density that make sense relative to the context of the community and aren't out of scale and do not unduly burden infrastructure capacity. But at the same time, these are often development patterns that are not allowed under the current zoning and, and land use policies that are in place in a lot of a lot of communities across the country. Which is, is certainly a shame because, I mean, the, the way that you've got it laid out puts housing, you know, carefully in different locations in ways that are uh, beneficial in, in many ways. And amongst those, say, like we talked about in the opening, are equitable housing, promoting racial equity and things like that. Can you kind of connect up to... Uh, to those topics and, and how this creative approach hits on those? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's a couple levels of that conversation. You know, for those of you in the audience that have read The Color of Law, that text does a really great job connecting the zoning maps that are in place in communities today from Oakland, California to St. Louis, all across the country, to the old redlining maps that were established by the federal government and bolstered through exclusionary lending practices which essentially forbade mortgages from being written in areas deemed to be unfit, which as the history shows is a series of highly inequitable by design policies. And so when we look, for example, at a place like St. Louis, Missouri today, we find that 75% of the area that was essentially zoned for white homeowners, according to the redlining maps of the early 20th century, 75% of those areas are exclusively single detached only zoning, whereas places that were redlined, named hazardous on the old redlining maps where FHA would not guarantee loans, only 3% of these areas are zoned exclusively single detached only. So I think you see a real correlation between redlining maps and what we see in today's 
Euclidean zoning codes. This is what folks often refer to as exclusionary zoning. To connect it to the opportunity point, Steve, the places that, again, are majority uh, single detached only zoning are the very places that create the highest or the best economic mobility outcomes. So in percentile terms, those grade A places on the redlining map deliver a 43% economic mobility factor where the the grade D places or those hazardous unfit to lend places deliver economic mobility at the 31st percentile. And what this really shows is if you have the means to acquire an expensive single detached home in an exclusionary community, your kids have the best shot at upward economic mobility. And if you don't, the access to community assets and resources and other factors that drive economic mobility outcomes just aren't there, right? And so part of what we're talking about are tearing down the systems that not only perpetuate a housing shortage and unaffordability crisis in high opportunity neighborhoods, but really creating an environment, tearing down the systems that perpetuate unequal access to opportunity. And so there's a real nexus, there's a real um, connection here between just talking about barriers to housing and housing affordability, but really talking about barriers for people to access community assets and resources and and things that are going to propel people and enable people to thrive. Mike, you know, as you talked about, you know, with this answer and, and so much that we've covered so far, right, there is an interconnectedness between underproduction of housing where where that underproduction of housing happens uh, and also racial equity but let's let's take a look at your estimates of underproduction and and how you come to those estimates yeah sure sure Corey we really tried to boil this down to be a simple and transparent and easily replicated formula so that anyone interested in replicating or building on this research has the ability to. So it's really a simple formula that involves estimating the target number of homes or what's that housing need from a demand side perspective versus what are the homes that are available for primary residential occupancy, whether that be for sale, single detached housing, or for rent, multifamily, or anything in between. And so on the left-hand side of that formula, we're really talking about housing needs. There's essentially three key components. First, we can understand from census, you know, how many households exist in any given year. We're using ACS data to really just quantify how many how many homes are needed based on the census definition of households at a metropolitan level or at a statewide level. Second, we want to get at this issue that some describe as an endogenous relationship between the expense or unaffordability of a housing market and the extent to which we're seeing household formation at normal rates, right? So you've probably heard of this concept as uh, failure to launch. You know, the post-college grad living with their parents for an extended period of time, working a job, right, but doesn't necessarily have their own place. We see here in D.C., oftentimes with a lot of entry-level office policy communications roles, you know, younger folks not being able to afford their own studio or one bedroom apartment. Again, because the place, the Washington DC Metro is very expensive, but incomes are are rather low. It also might be simply a mismatch of housing, right? Maybe not enough studio apartments to go around for the profile of, of the community that happens to live here. So we see a lot more unrelated persons doubling, tripling up 
in individual dwelling units. We see extended periods of kids living with their parents. In general, you know, in census terms, we're seeing a headship rate that has um, uh, significantly shifted off of the rate of heads of households that we saw even just two decades ago. And so what we've done to really quantify this effect is to understand what were the headship rates by age cohort going back to 2000 versus today. So if today, you know, you've got folks doubling, tripling up, one is filing as head of household, if you will, whereas, you know, 20 years ago, that might have been three households. So we're really trying to normalize for that historic level of household formation relative to the size of the community, right? And saying, if this community, in this case, Washington, D.C. Metro, wasn't as unaffordable as it is today, we would have many more missing households, which would require more housing units. This is the endogenous relationship between households and housing units. We're trying to get at that and say, because we have a shortage, because we have an underproduction of homes, we're not seeing the households and the census numbers that we should. And so that's really the second component of getting an arms around housing need. And then finally, we want to get at structural vacancy, which is in a balanced housing market, there's this notion of a natural vacancy rate, which allows for folks moving around. There's going to be frictional vacancy, right? As someone leaves that one bedroom and moves to a two bedroom, or they leave that apartment and they want to go buy a house. In order for that mobility to occur physically from unit to unit, you need to have a healthy level of, of vacancy. And so we look to the economic literature. We also look to actual hard market data in different markets across the country over time. And it all kind of pointed to a natural vacancy rate of 5%. So we're taking households plus how many households should have formed but didn't, and we're grossing that sum up by a 5% natural vacancy rate, which gets us to, again, at the unit of geography that we're measuring under production, how many housing units should we need or what's the total housing demand at any particular place and in a particular time. Sort of compared to that, housing need, then we want to look at the inventory, we want to look at the availability of homes. And that process is, is fairly straightforward. We're taking the total number of housing units per data from census. We're stripping out second and vacation homes, which really aren't eligible or available for primary residential occupancy. You know, these things are rented out as vacation homes or they're used by, you know, it's a house in Maine that's used by a couple in, in DC, and that's not available to access someone's primary residence. So we're stripping those units out of the inventory. And then finally, really getting at a problem that has been coming to the fore more recently, which is this issue of uninhabitable units, which are units that are in significant states of disrepair that cost often far more um, to rehabilitate and put it into service than would economically make sense given where rents are at or given where home sale prices are at. And so you have this sort of, let's say, ghost inventory of homes which show up on, on census as housing units, but they really aren't available for occupancy because of that physical deterioration. And so we're stripping out what we're calling uninhabitable units and again, we'll get into this more when we talk about some of the trends, but this enables us to really take a closer look at markets like Detroit and begin to understand why underproduction is showing up in Detroit and other Northeastern or historically disinvested communities, very different driver than, let's say, the underproduction in San Francisco.
Yeah, and I think that uh, this is another value of the report is that uh, you've created a methodology where you can tease out these differences. And I know in some of the work where we do, where we look at affordability, sometimes you know it can be a little bit counterintuitive because say like DC, when you only look at the data without a framework like what you've built, looks like it's a high income area and rents should be relatively affordable. But as you've captured, there's a shortage of kind of household formations there, right? There's missing households. And, uh, and that's intuitive on Detroit as well in terms of having uninhabitable units. As, as you consider you know, the data and, uh, and these kind of insights, can you look into you know, more regional coverage or, or metros uh, and see what you find there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think generally we're seeing an upward trend in the number of metros that are experiencing housing under production nationally. So to give you some context there, In 2012, 100 metros out of a total 309 experienced underproduction. In 2019, that number jumped up to 169 uh, metropolitan areas. So a pretty significant step up in terms of the extent to which communities are, are facing a deficit of homes. We further broke that data down to sort of look at different typologies of place, different typologies of metros in terms of how underproduction is is manifesting itself. So you have a spectrum of places that are doing really well, metropolitan areas that adequately produced in 2012 and have continued to meet and exceed uh, housing needs. That represents about 17% of all the metros um, across the country. You then have places that underproduced in 2012 and have now reached, uh, fully recovered, reaching adequate housing production. In, in those places, there aren't many of those places. We found 11 metros out of the total 309 that met that test. Uh, you've got places that were underproduced in 2012 and are now recovering. That's 14. You've got places that adequately produced in 2012, but now are trending towards underproduction. And that's 75. So going back to my comment earlier that 169 places are underproduced, you know, I would add to that the 75 that are now trending towards underproduction because barring any significant policy shifts in those metropolitan areas, they will be underproduced in the coming years. So that takes you to about 230 or 75% of metropolitan America that either experienced, currently experiencing underproduction or experiencing an increase in underproduction over the past seven years. So that's the trend line, uh, Steve, in terms of how many communities, um, how many metropolitan areas are experiencing underproduction or, or headed that way rather quickly? So Mike, I feel like you probably have something that's going to surprise all of us a little bit, maybe a market that, that we've never talked about on the podcast before that really drives this point home. Any that surprised you as you looked at the data? So Corey, no, absolutely. Take a place like Salisbury, Maryland, a coastal community, on the East Coast uh, in Maryland, not too far from Washington, D.C. It's a very small town. And we, we found that you know, this was one of the places that was uh, adequately produced in 2012, but headed towards underproduction at a pretty rapid clip during those intervening seven years. I actually found a really interesting story where about a year ago, the city called a 90-day moratorium on permit fees for housing built in Salisbury. Now, this is a place of about 15,000 dwelling units. So again, not a huge community, fairly remote relative to the, to the core population centers of Baltimore and, and Washington, D.C. But over that 90-day period, 
Salisbury was able to increase its housing stock, increase the number of units that came in for permit application to the tune of 8,000 units, again, relative to a 15,000 unit base of housing existing across the community. So this just goes to show that when you tear down barriers, whether financial, whether uh, zoning or land use related, you know, there is so much pent up demand for housing. And that community is now back on course to remain adequately produced housing. So that's just one example of where we can find really interesting stories, not only about the problem, but about potentially solutions through leveraging this data set. No, I, I like that point a, a whole lot. And you know, one thing that, that I wonder, you know, thinking of, of Salisbury or, or other places, you know, we've been talking a lot about production and underproduction, but what is driving the gap? Like in some cases, it, like Salisbury, that's a pretty big gap between 2012 and 2019. So was that driven by just a population influx in, in the city? No, you know, um, Salisbury was a case where the community was adequately produced over that entire period of time. But what we were seeing is that largely due to folks driving further until they can qualify for housing that they can afford, we were seeing mounting pressure, increased, let's say, housing needs per the methodology I described earlier for housing, in, even in a place like Salisbury. So I think what we saw on the ground with that story about the permit fee moratorium is a recognition from local government in that community that, hey, you know, we have a, a situation on our hands in terms of not enough housing available for these newcomers. And rather than try to cast a blind eye to it or preserve the status quo, this was a community that said, hey, let's, let's take advantage of this economic development opportunity and turn the ship around, so to speak, by encouraging, not discouraging, more homes to be built. And, you know, guess what? 8,000 units of new housing come in the door during this uh, permit fee moratorium issue. Now, I'm not suggesting that every community needs to uh, place a moratorium on permit fees. But what I am saying is that this goes to show that there are actions that local government can take to break down a variety of barriers to needed homes. And using this data set, really understand where those trends are headed and, and respond accordingly. I really like um, this example, like you say, which which is one that's that's not in the pages of the report, but one that truly kind of captures the mix of of how you're, you know, looking at the data and seeing these issues, and then seeing you know the effects of if people make decisions that are somewhat consistent with making it possible to to fill in these gaps and to create housing. I like how the report also, we've talked a lot about, you know, the methodology and how we build up to that. But the, the report does a great job of making a clear methodology and illustrating that, but then bringing in examples and, you know, kind of um, different sections where, where you look at how this impacts, you know, minority neighborhoods, the climate, things like that. I don't know if there would be one of those that you'd want to highlight. Yeah, no, I, I would say, you know, clearly we're facing climate challenges across the country, right? We're seeing more cars on the road. We're seeing that manifest itself in terms of quality of life issues, more and more folks sitting in traffic. Uh, we're also seeing that in terms of a carbon footprint that, that's rapidly increasing and contributing to the climate challenges that the nation and the world are facing. You know, there's also uh, increasing pressures on the urban wildland interface and with the rise of wildfires in the in the West, uh, with the rise of hurricane activity rapidly increasing and affecting 
everything from literally people's houses in flood prone areas to to widespread insurance premium impacts financially impacting folks even who aren't directly experiencing damage from hurricane activity right there's this issue of back to where we build housing and so what we found in applying a better foundation in our report is that we can build 3.8 million homes across this country using 28% of the land that we otherwise would by making different choices about zoning and land use policies and the way that we develop community infrastructure. More than that, by building more homes near jobs in existing areas where we can leverage transportation and infrastructure networks, places that have lots of jobs but not lots of housing, we can reduce vehicle miles traveled or VMT to the tune of 15% compared to more of the same, which makes up about 7.7 billion fewer VMT traveled annually. So these are significant climate policy benefits that, you know, again, we're talking about housing and we're talking about land use and zoning policies, but it is becoming more and more apparent, particularly through the research from this report, that addressing the housing underproduction and applying a better foundation as a way to think about policy choices can meaningfully advance climate policy priorities across the country. Mike, thank you so much for the, for that. And you know, I just want to you know we've we've covered a lot of ground today in in discussing the report. Just if we can distill all that to you know, three to five things that you're seeing communities across the country doing, you know, people across the country doing that are that are starting to move the needle and line up with what your report is covering. What would those be? Sure. Well, I would just first like to say thank you, Steve and Corey, for the opportunity to chat about this new report. We're really excited to roll it out. And I certainly hope everyone in your audience has the opportunity to take a look at it. I mean, it's clear, you know, no matter you're talking about cities or suburbs or even rural America, the cost for housing and the demand for it has dramatically outpaced salaries and supply. And Americans are paying historically high rents and homeownership is increasingly out of reach. And so I think we're starting to see momentum build for solutions. And, and that's really the goal of this report, is to shine a light on the depth and the scope of housing underproduction across the country and create a vision or a roadmap for policymakers and advocates to really use to drive local solutions to these housing uh, uh, challenges. So I would say that you know we would break it down into exclusionary zoning, we would look at an element we, ha- we haven't gotten as much into, and maybe this is fodder for a future podcast, but the infrastructure funding challenges and how that manifests itself as itself a barrier to affordable housing in particular. And let's say process challenges, whether that's uh, delays and permit issuance or convoluted and unpredictable entitlement processes. And so we have seen steps in the right direction, really at all levels of government, to take this issue on. I'll call out an example, Charlotte, North Carolina, a community that is rapidly growing. It's one of those communities in our report that historically have been considered an expansive community, trying to moderate affordability, tamp down out-of-control rents through expanding geographically. Over the past few years, the city has spent quite a bit of time thinking about its uh, comprehensive plan, its uh, land use policies, and established a, a program where if you build housing within a proximity of a fixed guideway transit station area, e.g. Uh, light rail, that you can take advantage of by right permissions 
for your project, meaning there is no discretionary uh, path. There is very little uncertainty. Projects are deemed approved as long as they qualify under certain criteria set by the city. That policy has driven a significant increase in the production and the construction of not only more housing near transit and in these high opportunity, amenity rich, job rich places around Charlotte, but it's driven the production of more mixed income housing with affordable homes within larger market rate communities. So I would call that out as a really great example of a policy that that we've seen relatively recently yielding results. But also point to the state of Oregon, which in 2019 passed legislation to eliminate exclusionary zoning statewide, allowing missing middle housing to be built as of right. But beyond the as of right aspect, which is, of course, similar to uh, what I was just sharing about Charlotte, is the idea of expanding the zoning laws to allow what used to be built all the time 100 years ago in Portland, which are duplexes, triplexes, cottage clusters. And so Oregon has shown that from a statewide perspective, a lot can be done to set minimum standards around housing. We applaud that. And now we've seen multiple other states, including California and Maine, not only run legislation to replicate this idea, but actually get it across the finish line and passed into law. And then I would say from a federal perspective, there are a lot of exciting proposals out there from the administration, from members of Congress on a bipartisan basis to provide resources to communities to understand what's going on on the ground. And I think the more transparency we can create, the more resources that could be provided to local leaders looking to take this issue on in the same way that the mayor of Salisbury, Maryland, took the issue on and and drove results, I think the better. I think there are a lot of communities, a lot of cities and towns across the country understand that there's a deficit of needed housing and that there are solutions. Oftentimes, they just need resources, and we're optimistic that those resources and that political will is on the horizon. So we're optimistic um, that a lot of more communities will follow in the footsteps of places like Salisbury and Charlotte and Cambridge, Massachusetts, take this issue on and meaningfully address housing under production. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Those are really fantastic examples, and uh, and it's been really great having you on here today walking through the report. I would just reiterate... What you said is I think our our listeners will definitely appreciate the report, which has lots of great graphics and is really well presented. And uh, you've definitely more than whet our appetite, but I do think that it's worth people taking a look. And again, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, guys. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production leads, Jenny Wynn and Raquel Sams, and audio producer, Dalton O'Cola. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddymac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.